Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the place where we talk about oil because it has to be drilled, and we talk about diesel because you need it to run a truck or a train. We also talk about whatever we want to talk about each week, and we're going to speak to David Carell. He's with the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. He's been doing a lot of work with the trucking industry, and he just signed up to assist a leading truckload carrier with some of their issues. We're going to be joined by him in a minute. We tend here to talk about oil or diesel in a very short-term time span, like what did oil prices do in the last week or two? What did diesel prices do in the last week or two? But right now, I think consumers of oil and diesel need to be taking in information about what is going on long-term. Commodities run in cycles. Certainly, if you are a trucker, you know this. 2018 was described as the greatest year for drivers ever. 2019 was pretty weak. In April of this year, drivers were blaming record low rates on rapacious brokers. Now there are drivers who are reporting that on some lanes they can easily get $3 per mile. And then the cycle sows its seeds for the next downturn. Too much capacity is added, generally, be it people or trucks. Now, in a normal year, you might see a lot of people coming in to get their CDLs or going back on the road if they've already got them, though obviously the pandemic has changed that. But the number of people coming back into the market is always part of that cycle. It's just a whole lot of things, and it all combines to set the table for weaker markets sometimes down the road. It happens in oil. It happens in trucking. It happens in copper. You name it. You'll hear people in, the, in this industry say, you know, we're our own worst enemy for doing that, for adding this capacity. I've got news for the trucking business. It's not unique. When a market is strong, any market, the incentive is there to produce more of whatever product it is that you supply. That sets up the downturn in the future and vice versa for when markets are weak. So what I see happening now in oil is the classic foundation being laid for higher prices somewhere down the road. Just this past week, both ExxonMobil and Chevron announced significant reductions in their capital expenditure budgets for next year. That means less exploration efforts for the oil that would have been produced and needed in 2023 or 2025 or maybe even further out. And those two companies, they're the biggest, but they're not alone. Cutting CapEx is the order of the day in the industry right now with prices at low level, with demand reduced by the pandemic, and a bit of caution in the models for the longer range future about whether oil demand peaked last year, never to get back there again. That last one really is the big uncertainty. Governments are banning sales of new petroleum-powered vehicles starting as early as 2030. That's an ambitious timeline that assumes a penetration of electric and other vehicles that I think is unlikely to be met. And that's, But you know that's offset by the fact that there are still millions of people in this world who want the same sort of freedom that vehicles give the, give the people in richer nations now. They don't have those cars. They want to buy them. We see what's happened to China's numbers over the last 20 years. I really wonder if their first entry into the world of car ownership for these poorer people, but who are going to do well enough to be able to afford a car, is that going to be an EV? I really have my doubts. So that kind of comes back to the old adage, this time it's different. The argument that this time it's different in oil would have to rest on the idea that we were not going to need the oil that now won't be produced as a result of the CapEx cutbacks. Besides the long-term bans on new petroleum-fueled vehicles, there is also the question of just how much commuting are we permanently losing as people work from home more, even if that number is short of 100%. All of this has to be factored in when looking in the future. But those would be long-term secular changes. 
I think it takes a stretch intellectually to think that the normal fluctuation of commodity cycles has come to an end. The whole swings of lower prices, meaning low investment, meaning lower production later. Is that really gone now because of some of these trends in energy markets? Things just do not happen that fast. The fact is the biggest reason we had a collapse in prices starting in 2014 was a classic commodity cycle reason. The price got super high in 2008. It brought in new investment. That brought in new expertise, which helped move along the fracking revolution. And suddenly we're looking at more supply than the world can handle. That helped push prices down as low as $30, a level that were higher than that now, but we're still low historically, and that's because of the pandemic. So I do hesitate to declare that the next wave of high prices is on the horizon because of the nature of shale, which we didn't have in the past. Shale supply can be brought on quickly, far quicker than the more conventional wells of the past. That could mean that those CapEx cuts won't be as devastating as they might have been in the past because, as somebody said, the rocks are still there and the world knows how to go get those rocks and get the oil out of those rocks and do it pretty quickly. But if you're looking at higher prices in 2025, I want you to remember these months. They were when the CapEx budget started to get cut for the big boys. These months are the continuation of bankers pulling back on the credit lines that kept this industry afloat for so many years, adding production. These are the months when maybe some city dwellers moved out to the country. And now instead of walking to a restaurant or taking a subway to one, they need to get in the car to drive to one. And these could all be laying the groundwork for the next big oil price spike. We're just not sure when it might be. We are going to shift gears now here on Drilling Deep. We're going to be joined by our guest, David Carell. He's with the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. They do a lot. If you look at their website, it's a real great overview of the studies they've done on supply chain. But luckily for us here on Drilling Deep, David's got a special focus on trucking. So, David, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thank you very much for having me, John. So why don't you first talk about the, the, the MIT Center and what you do in it? Sure. We're, uh, I think, kind of a unique organization in that, so we are an academic institution. We're part of MIT and we're part of the School of Engineering there, but we're very industry focused. We we try to be as practical as we possibly can in our research. So what we do is conduct research, uh, oftentimes with partner companies, helping to advise us, uh, helping us to find the right questions. And then we try to generalize what we learn from that research and take it out into the world and improve supply chain management for everybody. Now, you caught my eye because uh, U.S. Express, big truckload carrier, announced a partnership with the MIT Center, and it's going to involve a lot of your students. I guess it's ongoing now. Looking at U.S. Express, U.S. Express is a company that's going through massive changes right now, and they're very upfront about that. Uh, and they brought you in to, I'm going to oversimplify here, take a look. Uh, you know, It's a, such an old, old uh, adage, but the look under the hood about what they could do to improve their efficiency. So tell me about that initiative and and is there anything yet you found or is it just too early in the game? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a really exciting project. We're, we're really excited to be working with US Express on it. I, I think you captured it really well. So they're, you know, a known company in the industry. They're, you know, we're innovative before they even got together with us and we're hoping to be part of that, that uh, focus on innovation. And I always sort of explain our role in, in this project and in other ones kind of like the world I grew up in was agricultural extension. I'm uh, from Iowa originally, grew up around farming, and there was always the role of the university to share 
the most recent science and data with the farmers. So the farmers in our community had all the best information available to them to make the right decisions for their farms. And that's sort of how I learned how to be a researcher and how to be a research communicator. And we're really doing the same thing with trucking. You know, U.S. Express knows how, and our, and our other partners, know how to run their company best. But what we want to do is bring a scientific, almost arm's length mindset to the data sets and see what what our skill set can bring to help inform their decisions. Is there a danger that companies at a time like this, when the money's just coming in and the rates are great, uh, good times all around, that they start to get a little bit soft about uh, pursuing new efficiency initiatives? I, I bet that danger is there, but I don't think it touches my work, only because you know at the same time that we have what's going on financially, we have the ongoing issue of the driver shortage. And so, you know, I can I can look at my work from a sense of cutting costs, you know, improving efficiency to lower cost, but we can also train that same eye on improving driver retention, which is still an issue. It is an issue. And what I've always found interesting is that there are so many consulting companies out there, so many advisors who have made a career about advising and working with companies on retention. They, they measure retention. They design plans on retention. Uh, everybody says, you know, when you get on a conference call, an earnings uh, conference call every quarter, everybody says, well, you know, we were okay. We were kind of happy with our retention this quarter. Uh, it, it was better than, than average. And, you know, but the, the average is still up there on crazy numbers, except during really down times. I mean, is all this effort kind of wasted or is all this effort basically stopping things from getting worse? <laughs> Gosh, I wish I had the answer to that question because that's a great one. It's sort of an unknown unknown. Uh, but I, I don't think the effort is wasted, at least in, in my approach to it, and people have been approaching it you know, since long before I started, is that maybe we just haven't figured out how complicated an issue it is. So, so I say that because oftentimes when you talk to people who are new to this issue, they say, well, pay them more and that'll fix it. But you know, that's been tried. And it hasn't totally fixed it. Uh, In my own work, I do a lot of work with electronic logging device data. So we can look at the the popular hypothesis. Well, if you reduce dwell times, that'll fix it. We're still looking at that. I can't say definitively, but it doesn't look to me that that's sort of the silver bullet either. I think it's a real mix of understanding, you know, pay certainly matters to everybody. That's got to be front of mind. But also how people want to live their lives and meaning drivers and the how much they're willing to bend that um, lifestyle to get the load delivered. And, and that is a tricky thing with lots of moving parts. So it's a long way of saying I, I don't think it's for naught. I think it's just a really tricky question because you're dealing with real people's lives in the real world. Well, what are some of the bits of advice or pieces of advice that you may have given to somebody, maybe not necessarily in a consulting role, but let's say you were having a discussion with a, a truckload executive and they said, okay, David, tell us, you know, what are some of the, the key things that maybe people don't think about regarding driver retention that you feel that you've concluded on based on your work? Sure. I, I think we can say, and, and to most people, this will sound like, well, we knew that. So <laughs> I want to uh, set the expectation, but mileage matters. You know, so anytime I run a test that looks at what is going to predict if a, if a driver is more likely to leave or not, how many miles they got over that week or that month or whatever the period of study is, is, is definitely strong. You know, I think we see that the drivers are 
typically profit maximizers for the most part. And, and if they're working, they want to be moving and making money. Uh, the other thing, and it's in- oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say it's interesting because because uh, um, Eric Fuller, the CEO of, U- of U.S. Express, as we mentioned earlier, you're working with on his earnings call. He's been talking about Variant, which is their new, I don't know if I call it division, but they're certainly their new initiative, the new truck brand. And one of the things he says is that their retention is much, much better. And that's the reason why they're getting more miles. Absolutely. And that, you know, I was just running some some numbers this morning. That I feel, and I think the industry knew that, you know, sometimes uh, I, I think myself, I'll use another analogy, I used the agricultural extension one before, but it's almost like a physician, you know, I mean, people, I think oftentimes when they see their their family doctor, they have a sense of what's up, they just want someone else to investigate and, and uh, you know, help them get a sense of maybe the scale of the issue. So we can study things quantitatively that people maybe already felt and... <clears throat> Uh, drivers wanting <laughs> wanting to roll and wanting to drive, we definitely see in the data, and we can quantify that in future reports. One I'm working on now will have that. Uh, another thing, uh, two other things that that have come out to me. The first one is probably maybe already felt by your audience. The second one, maybe not so much. Uh, utilization, it's part of the same card, but it's it's a big thing. It's it's really lower than people who haven't looked at these numbers would expect. So obviously I haven't looked at every driver in America's ELD, only the ones that our research partners share with me. But, you know, a driver can drive legally for 11 hours a day in the U.S. And typically they're getting six and a half, six and a half to seven across companies for over-the-road drivers is a a good number. And that's leaving like 40% of your money-making hours on the table. Yeah, we we've got that data in Sonar, you know, the the Freightwave dashboard data product, and uh, it it really doesn't vary that much. I mean, it'll, it'll it'll fluctuate some, but it really is a staggering number. Some you know you hear all these uh, really vehement arguments and discussions about hours of service, and you think you know just as you said, nobody's really coming close to what they're allowed. Yeah, and and that's one of the really motivating pieces of of my work is that you know I come into this and in the the driver shortage has existed for a long time before I even, you know, started looking at things. But we looked at that just sort of with sort of with some back in the envelope arithmetic and said, all right, if there's a shortage, how short are we? And the last estimate from ATA was 60,800. And I say, okay, well, if there's 2.4 million American drivers, that puts us at like only 2.5% short. But if I know the drivers are significantly underutilized, Maybe I could make up that shortage, not with new drivers, but with getting the existing cadre of drivers more hours. And if you calculate it that way, I'm only looking for an extra 12 to 15 minutes per day driving per hour to make up that shortage. Yeah, well, I guess it's kind of like the last mile, though. You know, those last hours are tough to add on to. I mean, if there, if it's, if that that number is consistently around six and a half, which it sounds like your data shows, and certainly the data in Sonar shows that. You know, that's that's a that's almost structural. And boy, you know, carving out another 10, 15 minutes, it sounds easy, but it's probably going to be a lot harder than that. A hundred percent. I a hundred percent agree. But but that's the and that's the other side of being, you know, sort of an academic researcher. All these real pain points for real people and real companies uh, are just interesting to me, but not personally painful. So I have to be respectful. You know, that's that's people's lives. That's drivers who didn't get home for their kids' birthdays or for holidays when they're delayed. You know, so it's it's a real real thing that we want to take take seriously. And, and so that's where we're going next is 
find me 15 minutes, 12 to 15 minutes. How can we use our you know, statistical capabilities and, and quantitative capabilities to look for the low-hanging fruit? So that's what a lot of what we do in the lab is look for that. Well, except maybe those 10, 15 minutes are high-hanging fruit. It's, they sound like low, but they might be a lot <laughs> higher up on the tree. So that's I'm true, the relatively to- lowest. <laughs> that's right. a good point. I'm going to ask you to finish the sentence for me. The most underappreciated dynamic in trucking today is blank. Gosh, sorry for the pause, but I want to think about it. No, I, I wouldn't have. You know what? If it was, if it came right off the top of your head, it couldn't have been too underappreciated. So I wanted you to think about it. <laughs> think about something that, you know, you okay. see all the time in all of your research that maybe just doesn't grab the headlines. I'm going to say distribution center staffing policies. Wow, that's that's not one I've heard. That's that's the kind of answer I was hoping for. So talk about them. <laughs> sure, sure. So uh, we've done a lot of work where we look at dwell time specifically. And as we look at that, we see, first off, um, well, obviously dwell time matters. Uh, And one of the things, for example, we asked early on was we said, can we predict dwell time at a facility before the truck gets there? And we used three, I think it was three or might have been four pretty sophisticated machine learning models and lots and lots of data to predict the dwell time that a truck would experience. And we were able to predict it okay, but when we looked at how the computer really did it, when we set that as the goal, the best predictor was just historical dwell time. We didn't need any of the uh, you know, sophisticated machine learning techniques. We just needed to know the average dwell time at that facility, and that was the best predictor going forward. So the, the joke uh, that I gave to the students in the lab was, well, it's just proof that people don't change. You know, Facilities don't change. People don't change. And that, I think, has to do with the way facilities are just run what their legacy staffing policies are, because then if we break that down, we say, okay, but let's look at hour of the day. It's very interesting how dwell time drops in the morning across almost every facility we've ever looked at, and then picks up in the late afternoon to evening, which is inverse to when all the trucks are coming in. So essentially, there's a lot of appointments in those morning hours, and that's when things are moving quickest. But if something comes outside of that expected morning hour appointment, we see dwell times really grow. So I think there's something around the way we staff people at distribution centers, you know, the origins and destinations of our trucks that that really puts delays into the system. Uh, the, the second part of that that is a more recent result that really leads me to think that is another thing we did was we looked at 7,000 distribution centers and said, you know, as a teacher, I'm going to do what I do as a teacher, and I'm going to give you all a grade based on your performance. So I'm going to give all of these distribution centers an A, B, C, or D, depending on how fast they typically get their trucks through. Then we looked at, and that's like a grading distribution, like in my class, uh, you know, certain number of A's, B's, C's, and D's. And we got that, and it was skewed towards B's, which was, I believe, an hour to two and a half hours on average to get a truck through. And then we compared the grading distribution in a soft market, a low price market, and a tight market, you know, a higher price market, to see if my class of students, to continue the analogy, got the same grading distribution. 
And what was fascinating was that they didn't. The grades got higher, meaning more A's and B's, when the market was tighter. So then we could use a test to say, well, what changed? And the biggest change was in the B's to the A's. So facilities that were on average one to two and a half hours dwell time got themselves to under an hour in the tight market. And all of that is a long way of me saying or what influenced me to think that they could just change policies. There wasn't a whole lot of time difference between the soft and the tight market in this experiment. So it's not like they rebuilt the facility or brought in a whole new team. They just changed their practices and they got better. Well, you figure if they're good enough to be a B, then they, the, the whole issue of it is probably very high on their list and they understand why it's why it matters. The other thing is when markets get tight, if they're that cognizant of uh, of their maybe a few shortfalls, they're smart enough to know that some drivers will stay away from those distribution centers. Some you know independent owner operators, if they get a load going to uh, this distribution center disaster A, they, they just don't want to go there. That, that's a great point, and that's one I hadn't thought of, that, yeah, the the bees may be, for lack of a better term, just kind of sleeping on their ability a bit until they get that sort of kick in the butt to, to change things. So let's talk a little bit about the MIT Center. Uh, who are your typical students? Are they undergraduates, graduates? Uh, is it a small school, a big school? Uh, and uh, what are they interested in these days? Yeah, so so our division's pretty small. So um, it's all graduate students. We have uh, two master's degree programs. Um, they're both one year long, and our students are typically people who have undergraduate degrees in. It's oftentimes engineering focused, but not always. And they've worked for maybe two to five years, and they're looking to come back, build their skill set, and then advance their career from there. So that's typically the students. And we have about 40 a year. I should say that's typically the um, the the master's degree students. I pause there because we also have a whole uh, another section, which is our online program, which is our certificate degree students. But just to focus on our master's degree students for now, typically around 40 from all over the world with something like two to five years industry experience coming back sort of to skill up and then move up the org charts wherever they go next. And where do they tend to get hired? Are they hired by big shippers like a, um, uh, well, I, I, like a Walmart? Well, I don't know if I put Walmart as a shipper, but, you know, a big shipper like a food company uh, or a big carrier, maybe a big 3PL. Or are they just distributed pretty widely? It, it's pretty widely. And I think it sort of changes with what's hot, you know, right you know, at the moment at the hiring time. So, you know, a lot of people go to Apple, uh, a lot of people going to Amazon recently, I uh, had some great students placed at Walmart recently. So it's uh, really sort of across the board. And, and a certain number of students, uh, their employer supports them taking the year off to come learn with us, and then they go back to that. So I have some great students who have done that uh, with PepsiCo and you know, lots lots of opportunities, I guess. we the For sure, the metric that I'm most excited about this year is um, one of our research partners said, you know, hey, Dave, I need someone who can do X, Y, and Z. Who do you have that, you know, you could recommend for us? And so I looked back and everyone was hired. So we're lucky, you know, supply chain's hot and hope, we hope we're teaching them helpful things. And so we have nobody looking for work from last year's class. And what are you seeing in terms of the number of people who apply versus the number of people you take? Is it getting more competitive to get in there? Uh, gosh, that's a that's a great question. And I, I don't monitor 
that yeah, you, number you, myself. You just see what mission sends you, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I, it's funny. I, I love working at MIT. It's just a wonderful place for a person with interests like mine. But I, I shy away from being a part of admissions as much as I possibly can. <laughs> I, I know this year, uh, just specifically, and this is just, you know, what they tell me from afar. Uh, you know, it was a big thing with COVID because, like every school, we've struggled with can students come on campus, and then the students struggle with, well, is it worth a time? a year out of my life and quite a bit of money if I'm not even going to be in the classroom. So everyone's been struggling with that this year. I know that for sure. Everybody's been struggling on a lot of fronts, but except <laughs> trucking companies, they got some great rates. So we want to thank David Farrell from the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics for joining us today on Drilling Deep, talking about his school and his views on the trucking market. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts from FreightWaves. We are on all the major podcast platforms. We hope you'll sign up and be a regular subscriber. I am your host, John Kingston. We'll see you again. <laughs> <laughs>